I think for me, the one thing that was pretty consistent in my story is I didn't hide from it though. And I didn't hide from others. I've, I've been fairly vulnerable with a good core group of people, which now my wife is chief of in terms of where I'm at emotionally, where I'm at uh, mentally and spiritually, when I'm feeling really hit or really tempted, or I, I, I've got this, this good group that is mindful of me in these moments. In fact, mm-hmm. they know me at my worst and can love me the most. And that I would say to anybody listening is one of the ways out of addiction and into freedom, into the better. Yes. Is to find that person yeah. or persons that will know you at your worst and love you the most. There is liberation there. There's freedom. There's an invite out of into something much more rich and textured. Hey guys, welcome to the Rally Point Podcast, where we'll be talking each week about how a man can rally around the gospel. A relationship with Jesus affects every aspect of our life. So in some weeks, we'll talk about theology, sometimes marriage, parenting, health, personal development, and probably a lot more. No one person has all the answers, so my hope is that this feels like a conversation with friends as we grow together and explore life as a Jesus follower and as a man. I'm Chris Cirillo, your host. Don't hesitate to hit me up on social media. Uh, Just come say hi, comment on this week's episode, and be sure that if you enjoy the podcast, to subscribe and please leave a review. It's so helpful for other people to find and hear the podcast. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Rally Point Podcast. Excited that you guys are here to listen. Incredible interview. I've got Jason Pamer here, who is a storyteller by trade and and um, really a director and filmmaker and writer um, who uh, did the um, well-known movie Heart of Man, talking about the story of the prodigal son, an incredible artistic journey with great interviews with leaders in the space and people who are also struggling to walk through life as a Jesus follower and as a man. So welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for taking some time. Thanks for having me, man. I'm proud to be here with you. I've heard nothing but good things. I've enjoyed some of your previous podcasts, so it's a pleasure to be with you. Cool. Well, uh, I'm I'm really excited about this personally as somebody who, you know, uh, as a man prior to um, giving my life to the Lord and, and moving into marriage and really going through healing process, struggled a lot with pornography, with lust, with the challenges of being a man. Um, and so your project with this movie was really touching for me. And, and, and I think it was a message that really needed to be uh, heard by a lot of men. And, and so um, I, I think I'd love to know kind of what was your upbringing like? What's your, your faith journey? What brought you to the point where you're sitting today where you create something beautiful like that movie? Yeah, born in Brazil to missionary parents. Lived there for a short stint when I was very young. Moved back to the States. Grew up in the Seattle area. Went to private school. The plan was always to play college basketball. Got an offer to play at a really small school up here. Decided against that. Went to Texas to study acting. There was this group of guys in high school that I would go out with every weekend. And we would shoot short films and music videos. And It scratched this itch and ignited this passion that you could go spend time on something. Creating with people you love. And then release it into the world and not have to be in that physical space for that to have impact. Mm -hmm. And that was very intriguing to me. I'm like, 
terms of trying to maximize time on earth, that seems like a, a potentially a good use of time. And it was like, I, I've got a diverse set of um, unveneered and untapped skills that over time, if I can put in the intentional practice, deliberate practice with the right guidance, maybe it could create a career uh, of telling stories. And so went to Greece, lived uh, there for a while, studied theology outside of Athens. This is part of kind of a journey to figure out what I wanted to do. And I have a diverse set of interests like many of us do. And so I just started testing these waters. And then when my wife and I moved back in 2010, I got married to a Greek over there and came back here, immigrated her from there. We have two young kids, Matthias and Daphne, five and two. We live in Kirkland, just east of Seattle. And I've been doing film full time for about 10 years in the producing writing role roles. And that just means essentially I'm, I'm kind of like the G- GM of a team. You've got Schneider, who's the GM of the Seahawks, and you've got Pete Carroll, who's kind of a director in the film space. And I help work with the director on shaping the vision and the creative and, and then go and make sure the whole thing gets across the finish line, make sure that we play the game and we win, essentially. So that's what I've been doing. Love it. Well, it's a it's a unique space to be in and, and something that um, I think – uh, it's really cool to have more Christians in a, a creative setting, um, creating beautiful things to be able to impact the world around them. And, and and I love what you're what you're talking about in terms of being able to impact outside of your physical space and and not having to be there. Um, so how how did your life kind of culminate to making the heart of man? What what's the story there for you personally? The inspiration, um, kind of how did how did that all come about? Yeah, the first film was Rape for Profit. Rape for Profit can be found on iTunes. That was a a multi-year journey into what does sex trafficking look like in the city, in a major U.S. city. The city of Seattle is what we chose since we live here. What's at the root of that? What's driving that entire industry? We found at the center of that is men that make up the demand. It's a supply and demand issue. Men make up the demand. Yeah. Well, what's driving the men? For many of them, for most of them. It was a addiction to pornography that started it. And then when that didn't quite scratch the itch enough, they had to take that addiction into the real world and started typically at massage parlors or strip clubs. And then when that wasn't enough, you know, going to buy girls on the streets of Seattle was sort of the next uh, evolution of that. And the thing that convicted me is, you know, that, that same thing had gripped my heart. And it didn't just stop when I got married. My yeah. eyes my heart being wooed by the other, this is what manifests in the film, The Heart of Man, didn't mm-hmm. stop. I think for me, the one thing that was pretty consistent in my story is I didn't hide from it though. And I didn't hide from others. I've, I've been fairly vulnerable with a good core group of people, which now my wife is chief of, in terms of where I'm at emotionally, where I'm at uh, mentally and spiritually, when I'm feeling really hit or really tempted. or I, I, I've got this this good group that is mindful of me in these moments. In fact, mm-hmm. they know me at my worst and can love me the most. And that I would say to anybody listening is one of the ways out of addiction and into freedom, into the better. Yes. Is to find that person yeah. or persons that will know you at your worst and love you the most. There is liberation there. There's freedom. There's an invite out of into something much more rich and textured. And so that's what Rape for Profit was. I'm on camera confronting these guys all around the city of Seattle in the moment of them giving in, 
thinking I'm this righteous defender warrior of these girls. And to some degree, there needs to be people that jump in the gap in the moment to stop the suppression. Absolutely. The way in which I was doing it, lots of shame, thinking that this is what would stop these guys from giving in to this behavior. Mm. And I had some mentors in the city see some early cuts of the film and they gently just pulled me aside and went, what about these guys? And I'm like, don't give two cares about those guys. I care about the girls. And they're like, okay. And the reality is that I am that guy and that shaming me in these moments is not the thing that's ultimately going to pull me out of it. It is knowing that there is a place setting at this feast table that will always be there to an elaborate five course meal. And it's in the presence of my community that most likely is talking about me when I get up from that table and leave. Father doesn't care though. He's going to invite me back to the table and he's going to toast me in the midst of those same people saying, you are my son and whom I'm well pleased. And I love you. And you're worthy of being here because I tell you, you're worthy of being here. And so I think it's, it's an ontological discussion. It's a discussion on identity and being and, Rape for profit deals with the fruit of the tree. The heart of man gets to the roots of it. What are, what are the drivers behind this? What causes us 15 years, 20 years into a marriage to go seek affection in the arms of another, either mm. digitally or physically? Yeah. That's just one element of the out, right? But for many of us, like abuse is a part of our stories. It's a part of my story. The older boy crossed the street when I was seven years old. And for many of my friends, that moment or moment stayed hidden for a long time, which caused significant pain and brokenness to manifest in their stories. Again, for me, I, I brought it up with my parents very shortly thereafter. And I remember being at my dad's waist in the kitchen and him confronting the family with the other boy there. And it got brought to light. Didn't take away those moments, but it brought it to light. Didn't let it fester. Didn't let it grow in the darkness. Mm. And for many of us, though, that's not the case. That's not the story. It stays hidden because there's so much shame wrapped up into abuse and particularly sexual abuse. And so the heart of man deals with that, too. That once that abuse comes into our story, the lies then of shame that whisper insidiously to us for decades, you're not worthy. Yeah. Uh, nobody, if anyone would, would actually know the truth about your story, you'd be cast out. People would want nothing to do with you. And the father is countering that lie by saying, no, I know you and all of the darkness, all that has happened to you, that has been caused by you. And yet I love you dearly. And I think understanding that is um, life changing. Man, that's so good. It's so neat. So um, how does this play in for you in terms of um, – you do a lot of things. Uh, you're an entrepreneur. You're uh, owner of a of a company. You're doing um, filmmaking. Uh, as as a man, um, what's our role in society? How how are we supposed to, especially as Christian men? Um, what what do you think is important for us? And and uh, how does all of these different projects kind of play into your view of that? Yeah, I think um, you know, I think. We need to love well, to serve well, to be compassionate, to be empathetic, to think about those that are marginalized or don't have the same opportunity and the same voice. I think we're mindful of all of those people. I think it's, we're chiefly responsible for that. Um, I think 
uh, so the work that I've done, you know, with Rate for Profit and with the Heart of Man, with the other projects I'm touching, I'm I'm trying to be mindful of like what I call these headwaters. Headwaters are the upstream of all the downstream in culture. You know, for a long time, people put a lot of money and still do put a lot of money into politics, thinking that this is the inflection point where we can change culture. To me, that's further downstream. It's too late almost. Upstream, in my mind, at least in North America, is entertainment, art, education even. I think this is where a lot of that stuff is shaped and then has a downstream, down-generational impact and effect. And so I try to pull a lot of the projects, as many as I can, through the lens of, is this headwaters? Is it worth me spending two, three, four years on this? What is the opportunity of impact? What's the magnitude of impact? So that's one of the first questions I'll ask. And then is it something I can get passionate about? You know, as it relates to film, this is where a lot of contemporary Christian filmmakers have missed it a little bit. We start with like, what do we want to say? And then how do we do that? How do we wrap a story around that message? How do we get people saved? How do we get people to have that altar call, that moment with God? And it's like, "Mm -hmm." art in general is inherently visual and requires a sense of entertainment. It's got to leave more gaps than it answers more. It's got to allow the audience, whether it's a picture or a film or a book or a piece of poetry, to invite the listener, viewer to participate in the discovery. That needs to beg questions of us. And I think a lot of Christian art does not do that. It's very didactic. It's on the nose. Mm. It's the Roman's road. It's like, this is the way you got to do it. This is the way that a lot of our evangelicalism in North America is shaped. These are the steps. These are the eight things. These are the seven prayers. Uh, these are the things to read. And I'm not bashing all spiritual discipline. Yeah. I think there's a place for that for sure. But when we give into these practices and think that the practices themselves contain some magic potion, and then when we fall back into our behavior, there's more shame because the very things that we thought would free us didn't free us. And so then we give in, and then we give in more and more shame, and now it's like it's just this vicious cycle. And it's like, no, there's a person at the center of all of this who carries the better yes within them, and his name is Jesus. Yeah. And he is not outside of the room, arms crossed, waiting for you to stop masturbating and look at a porn. He's actually sitting right next to you with his arm around you, going, buddy, there is something more rich, more real, more textured, more enjoyable, more fulfilling. Trust me. I know. I created you. Um, and, you know, that voice, that narrative is to me today, even after making Red for Profit in the Heart of Man. Mm-hmm. I'm still very much in process and in journey. I haven't figured it out because I made a film or a couple films or did a book about it or doing podcasts about it. Like, uh, yeah. no, I'm uh, And yet I, what I've come to realize to the Heart of Man is that I am more fully saint than I am simply saved sinner. I think if you were to ask me before the Heart of Man, what do you identify more with, saint or saved sinner? I would have gone, oh, saved sinner. And what I've come on the heels of the heart of man to realize is new creation, fully new, fully transformed, infused with Christ, you're a saint. Mm. And he's not looking at you, evaluating how, you know, how much you've done or have not done. It's like, no, actually, you're fully there in terms of the way I view you. Now, the process of living into that is sanctification. Yeah. Right. But instead of waking up each morning going, okay. I'm going to try real hard not to get short with my kids, not to be rude or judgmental of my wife, not to give in to this lust thing that's attacking my heart versus I am fully saint. So how does my day look? 
I'm looking mm-hmm. for opportunities to, um, to encourage people. I'm not looking for ways to avoid, to avert my eyes. I'm looking for ways to engage my kids, to ask them, how can I be a better daddy? What do you need from me? Inviting them into my process as a parent. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's so much more active and offensive than it is defensive, and I think that it's a more enjoyable way to live. Man, that's so good. So if if what I understand is correct, being a part of these headwater projects allows you to take those types of thought processes and in a really unique fashion integrate them downward into culture more effectively. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. It's like the power of how you can shift the way people have perceptions and, and yeah. thought processes is, is more impactful. <clears throat> yeah, it's the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, trying to lean into a growth mindset. You, you, the world can change. And you actually can have a material impact on how the world sh- is shaped and changes. Uh, and, you know, it, it starts small, I think, as millennials, like we grew up in the most marketed to generation in the history of mankind. And we see these, what we think are overnight successes or sensations. And so it gives this allure of grandeur and a platform and influence. And we forget that it starts with a thousand micro decisions every day that develops character over time. You know, it's like my favorite things in life, um, besides my family and my friends good wine, good cheese. These things take a lot of time. The best ones do. And mm-hmm. it takes a lot of struggle for that, for that vine to produce good grapes. It struggles to get through the soil, it struggles to get down into the soil to find the right nutrients. It struggles without struggle. It's same with working out, you know, yep. you look like you may work out or may not. I can't tell. I don't know. Um, I think you do. Uh, you know, it's struggle. You got to stress the muscle. You got to break yep. it down. These are all things that it's like, okay, it's got to be stress tested. It's got to be real world practiced. These are how you live this thing out. And it, it's, it carries with it, you know, obvious tension and pain the next day, the lactic buildup that, you know, all these things are real, but on the other side of it is real fruit. So much joy and fun. Mm. Man, there's so much. You want to go get a pump in right now, doesn't it? You yeah. Drop down and give me 30. <laughs> There's so much richness there, though. I mean, with the the imagery of fruit and the process to develop it, and and man, and and if I think about too, if I shift this to a uh, perspective of our relationship with the Father, right? Like the best fruit comes from a painful process. It comes from pruning these trees, right? And so there's inevitably, as you develop um, as a as a man, whether it's spiritually, personally, whatever. Uh, there's going to be, if you're a Christian, the father will prune you and he will prune you to bring fruit out in your life. And like, that's, that's going to be a painful process. Oftentimes. I don't know if. Yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of times, at least growing up, I had this view that it wasn't pruning to, to bear beautiful fruit. It was me as an ant and God with this cosmic, mm-hmm. you know, magnifying glass was burning off my yeah. feelings. You know, or you know, just it was a different view of God. And uh, Dan Allender in Seattle, brilliant mind, he had this image, didn't make the final cut of the film, but he's like, God is kneeling at your bed in the morning, so excited for you to wake up so that he can experience the day with you. 
he can journey throughout the day with you. I'm like, I never had that picture of God the Father. Mm. Like, I, I, I carried this picture that Jesus was the good guy, the guy that you could approach, the guy that took on human form and flesh, but he had to stand between you and God the Father because of sin. And if God saw you, or if Jesus wasn't there enough in front of him, my God, you better watch out. Uh, and it was just this, I don't know where exactly it came from, um, but I know that a large part of my generation came up in the United States with this view of God the Father. Yeah. Distant, angry, maybe even pissed off. Uh, Jesus, though, is like the, you know, gets the bracelet, and gets the, you know, can get a lot of people uh, on the on the same page in terms of like, what would Jesus do? And like, he was loving and all these things. But God the Father? Nah. And this is why it's like so hard to see the Father is loving. And then we, and then when you mix that metaphor with our earthly dads, you know, most of us have a visceral response to who is dad in your life, good mm-hmm. or bad. Very few of us have this sort of lukewarm, eh, he's, and for those of us that respond initially that way, when you poke on that a little bit, it gets visceral real quick. Well, he wasn't around. So, you, you know, I didn't really have a view. He wasn't there. It's like, okay, we can go there. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I think oftentimes that what's helped me, and I've definitely struggled with the same thoughts and feelings and perspectives that you have for sure growing up and even in recent past, but... I, I think what helped me was actually the like doctrine of the Trinity. <laughs> Cause I, I grew up, I grew up thinking that, you know, uh, God basically expressed himself in three different ways, but really the true <laughs> Trinity is that there's three distinct beings. They're all, they're all the same God, but they're all individual. And, but then just remembering that like, uh, they collectively make up the Godhead. So if we're made in our image, they must share. They must share, right? And then Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so I think we just need to grasp that, like, when we Good. when we see the way that Jesus, you know, advocates for a woman caught in adultery about to get stoned by Pharisees, and he says, hey, no, 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 you know, you who's without sin, you throw the first stone and then they all walk away. Like we see that side of Jesus, this advocate, this amazing, incredible, heartfelt person who desires to be with us. And, and, and then he says, Hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, we go, Whoa, there's the connection. Good man. That's good. And yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's so, good. <clears throat> that's good. And you, you've already shared some of this, but, Maybe you have more to add. I, I don't know. Um, your your husband of you said uh, kids are five. One and two. wife. Yeah, husband of one wife, father. Of one two. wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Matthias and Daphne, and yep. So, what have you learned about masculinity, biblical masculinity, in the last? Uh, how long have you been married now? This will be ten years. Ten years and five years with kids. Um, yeah. What are some things you can share with the audience about um, marriage and parenting and, and biblical masculinity and kind of what it looks like uh, to be a man? What what are your convictions in that area? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times this is the case. What, what culture will say is true, right, beautiful, worthy of pursuit isn't completely off because the best lie is never 100 percent. Otherwise, it's not attractive. It's very clearly bad. 
so what culture says about a lot of things is partially right, partially wrong. But then a, a good chunk of it needs to be reframed and rethought about. And I think Jesus did this all the time. It was like, you know, the Jews thought he was supposed to come and, and, and liberate them, you know, and, and be this reigning Messiah that was going to overrule the, the Roman Empire. And he kind of came, you know, all, all this stuff, right? Yep. Constant walking juxtaposition. And I think what, what we were told as boys, at least what I remember from being a boy, was like tough, fight through it don't really need to show a lot of emotion. Um, you know, all these things, right? These are all cliches. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's very interesting, right? Cause you got this Gillette commercial that comes out a couple weeks ago around toxic masculinity and to see on my Facebook feed, the two sides, like literally every other post, one's for it, one's against it, both extremely visceral. I think it's part of the fun of living here in Seattle and having a network outside of Seattle. It shows you yeah. that not thinks one way clearly. Um, and it's very, I think, fun to be a part of that bigger dialogue. Um, How would I get on that? Masculinity. Oh, uh, tender. The more my wife could see me process and open up my inside world, the more security she's going to have. Not true if I'm stoic, stern, confident. That doesn't actually breed trust. doesn't breed safety. It's not accessible. Uh, and same with my kids inviting, you know, getting down on my son's level and going, Hey, how can be a better daddy? And then letting him speak and say, I need you to slow down. I'm a three and a half, four year old kid at the time. I need you to slow down. Like, what do you mean slow down? He said, well, you get, you know, sometimes when I do bad things, you get angry too fast. And I'm like, okay, tell me more. I, you know, my dad was an amazing dad, great earthly example of everything I think the heavenly father is, but I don't remember him getting on his knee and asking me how to be a better daddy. Now, maybe he did. Maybe he did. But when I've talked about that with friends, it's uh, to me, I don't think it's as common as it should be. Inviting people yeah. into, you know, we do it with our wives, at least we should. How are you feeling about things? How, you know, how, checking in, right? We do yep. it at companies all the time. We do it with employees. We do it with contractors. We do it with clients. You know, uh, we operate, I think, uh, and this is for me, operated at a high level in kind of my vocation. It's like always on. And then for whatever reason, I take the intentionality off when I get home and it's like, no, actually the intentionality has to kind of ratchet up actually. Cause you've got less time. Mm-hmm. You gotta be more intentional. And I'm still in process with this, right? Like I still have so much to work on. Like, you know, 10 years into marriage, my wife still might get nervous when she goes and doesn't order for food for me. Cause I'm so specific. That sounds funny on the surface, but like deep down, deep down, like 10 years into marriage, my wife, shouldn't be feeling nervous about going to do an order for me because I'm so specific. Like I'm not providing a safe enough place or I'm too damn specific. Like, loosen up. <laughs> uh, yeah. So like there's, there's so much still that I'm like, the ground is still being tilled. I just think it requires intentionality, uh, significant posture of humility and inviting people in to speak into where we're at. Yeah. Let, let's talk about really quick before we, um, kind of wrap things up. I want to be respectful of your time, but um, what does it look like for you guys? Uh, I know there's a number of different ways to go about this, but how do you guys let people in? Um, how do you how do you guys approach that within your marriage and and having accountability and 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 doing that route as a couple? Yeah, or as a family, or letting people speak in, whether it's—I guess it could be parenting as well. But um, what are some ways that have been really healthy for you guys in that? Yeah, I think 
you know, constantly uh, surrounding ourselves with people that have gone before us. We, we used to do a lot before the kids. We've done it, I think, a fair clip after the kids, but inviting couples 20, 30 years our senior to sit around our table and do dinner and then mm-hmm. wine and then dessert and spending three, four hours with them. We've got a great strata of friends that are 15 to 25 years our senior and have walked many, many seasons ahead of us. So we've been very intentional, I think, from the beginning of marriage to surround ourselves with people like that. It's just so fun to do life with people like that. Yeah. Uh, and then having, you know, a, a good peer group uh, that enjoys some similar things, but isn't afraid to point out things either. Isn't afraid to ask the hard questions. Isn't afraid to poke. I think you're in dangerous territory when you have removed people from your inner circle that can call you on anything at any time. And I think mm-hmm. one thing that I'm continuing growth in is soliciting that feedback and then getting that feedback, being able to listen to it without having to have a response, without trying to counter it, without trying to explain certain scenarios as why maybe they didn't see the whole picture or, you know, I was in the right. That's been a thing that I'm still in process for, like being able to just listen to the feedback as hard as, as it is, and then just sit in it and not have to speak, just sit in it. So that's, I think, what we do is try to surround ourselves with a lot of great peers that can speak in and then a, a group of people that have walked before us that have freedom to speak in as well. Man, that's good. I, I, I'm with you. I struggle on the not not needing to validate or respond or explain um, and I think that's, I would say part of that is for, for everyone listening, um, there's probably a lot of guys that struggle with that. And I think some of that comes from being inherently ingrained in men to fix things. And, um, you know, we, we hear something's wrong. We need to explain it. We, our wives try to share with us and we need to go fix it rather than just be empathetic. I'm, I'm so bad about that at times. Um, so I, I'm, I'm with you. And I love that. Um, well, so you, you've shared a, a ton of stuff with us today, and, and I think you are just packed with wisdom, if, if I could just say that. I really appreciate what you've shared and, and who you are. Um, let's say you, you had a unique opportunity. You walk into your living room right now, and you sit down on the couch, and you just look over, and there's 18-year-old Jason. What? what kind of advice would you give him knowing that he now has all the years to live that you've already lived from 18? Um, is there anything really special that you would want to make sure if you had maybe five minutes with him that you said? Stay consistent on the treadmill, only drink (laughs) aged Bordeaux, uh, only eat cave aged cheeses. Forget quickly, forgive fast, you know, let uh, deeply insecure from a young age. And I compensated for that insecurity by outwardly being really confident or, or over asserting myself. And I think inviting people into that insecurity from a place of strength and not necessarily weakness, you know, Mm -hmm. and letting people into these places that we're hiding and we're trying to protect against. And then, We can swap out all these series of masks as we enter into different spaces, whether it's work, whether it's home, intimate relationships. You know, we've got potential masks we can pick up from the side table and put in front of us 
in any of these environments. And the longer we go doing this in life, the more the mask almost melds to our face. We're no longer picking it up and choosing. It's just there, swaps in and out. And then it's so subconscious. And then the decoupling of that mask from our real identity is so painfully difficult and takes so many years. So I'd say to 18 year old, like, hey buddy, you don't need those masks. It might feel like you do, but you don't. Mm. Uh, let's avoid a decade worth of removing those masks by not putting them up in the first place. And that, that, the way to do that is to really understand who the father is and who the father says you are, who he's created you to be. So you can, you know, live out of that place from a confidence standpoint. But we get, like, yeah. when you walk into a room and you know something, so uh, you just, you, you're sitting in a place of confidence. You just, you can, you know, like uh, if you were going to hit the gym with some buddies, you go in and you go, I know what to do. Like I, yep. and I know how to lead you this way and you, you can do it from a place of confidence. And I just think that we could operate from a place of confidence as it relates to identity a lot better. And we should, we don't. And you know, there are compounding realities in life that complicate that, make it harder for us to understand it. Our own addiction and giving ins complicates that process of understanding things clearly who we surround ourselves with complicates that, or all these things could offer further clarity, you know? It's one way or the other. It's going to yeah. either offer clarity around that or it's going to complicate things and make it more opaque. Yeah, that's good, man. I love the analogy of the masks. Uh, I, I definitely can relate to that and have been going through the process of unmelding, is, is how you said it, I think, those those masks from my face over the last uh, number of years. So, And, and it is kind of rough. Um Man, uh, I, I love this interview. Thank you so much. How can the guys that are listening keep in touch with you and what you're up to? You know, websites like whether it's your personal one or business websites or or creative stuff that you're doing, social media, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you can. Uh, I always like to give out my email. If you guys want to email me, you can email me at jason at cypherfilms.com, s y p h e r films.com, or jason at northwood.io. Uh, I love, I love, I, I just love people and I love the stories, uh, that, that all these faces and names represent because it's really a beautiful tapestry. It's so incredible. Like the author of the universe writing all of these stories real time, or at least mm. it's playing out real time yeah. and the threading of it. And then you and I connecting here and what's going to come of this friendship 10 years from now and who's going to listen to this podcast and what's it going to unearth in them. How does it move them forward or backwards? Like, what is it? Like, all of these choices we made uh, have impact in the universe. And it's so fun to think that there's this great author who's writing this incredible novel and yeah. it's unfolding. So I, I love that. So, Jason at Cypher Films, Jason at Northwood.io, uh, heartofmanjourney.com is for those that have seen The Heart of Man and want to dig deeper into their own stories to understand, to listen to their lust, to hear what it has to say to them. Why does it think that it can continue to come back to their front door and knock? Hardemanjourney.com uh, is an 18-episode deep dive into that with a good friend of mine, author and therapist, Jay Stringer. What else? Um, I'm in downtown Kirkland a lot, so you might see me there. I frequent the coffee shops down there when I'm in town. So, yeah, man. I appreciate you giving a platform, uh, you know, it's it's like what I saw with film, right? You and I spend 45 minutes on this thing. You release it into the world. 
you'll never know this side of eternity what full impact there is. I think mm. in these divine grace moments, it gives you and I view of our impact. And But I think that, you know, he's gracious that he doesn't give us the full view because I think it would overwhelm us. Yeah. I think it would overwhelm us to know what an actual day intentionally spent on mission could produce. The amount of conversations you could have that could send ripples into the universe. You know, yeah. it's a butterfly effect, but for the human, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I think, I think it's his grace that he doesn't allow us to see it because it would overwhelm us, the opportunity. So he gives us little glimpses of moments, right? You're going to get somebody texting you six months from now going, bro, I saw that podcast you did. Unbelievable. It did this, this, and this in me. And you're going to feel encouraged. And, you know, he's going to give us glimpses of that. But just know that the glimpse is the tip of the iceberg. That when you live on mission and you operate out of your gifting and in your identity, there is incredible fruit on the earth and into eternity that you only get a glimpse of a taste of this side of it. And I'm yeah. so sorry. I'm the film guy you interview in this light. I would get up and move the curtain. It's just horrible. <laughs> too, I'm so sorry for all your viewers. No, you're good, man. Uh, we, we so appreciate it. This, this has been awesome. And say it. Uh, it's your favorite podcast out of all the ones you've done. Say it. I want you to say it while <laughs> we're it is, it is my favorite podcast, uh, today. And oh, I, I, I say that because I don't think that they've all been so different. I don't think you could yeah. put them all into the same category and pick somebody. I think that oh, you yeah. each, each and every man brings a, a, a extremely unique. There's only one Jason that God created. And you're bringing something to this that these guys will never hear from anybody else. And so that's why I appreciate it. And so incredibly thankful to, to spend some time with you. And uh, we look forward to maybe having you on again. Thanks for providing the platform, my friend. Absolutely. Talk to you soon, buddy.